I'm Daniel Chacon. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. Today, my guest is an El Paso favorite, Sergio Troncoso. He is from here, lives in New York City now, but he's from here, and uh, we're going to talk about what he's been up to, the Sergio Troncoso Library, um, and all kinds of whatever comes up. It's just going to be a great conversation, so stick around. Whenever I think of Sergio, I think of uh, a time I was uh, confiding my dreams to a friend of mine. I think we were sitting in a pub having some beers, and I said to him, you know what I want? I want to live in an apartment above a bakery. And every morning, I want to smell that bread come through my window. And uh, I was really getting into it, and I was dreaming. I pictured a bakery in Paris or Madrid or some beautiful faraway city that I'd love to live in. And finally, my friend interrupted me. He says, what do you mean? That's my dream. I told you about that. I told you that about a month ago, that that's what I want. I suddenly remembered him telling me that, and I realized that I had stolen his dream. Well... Sergio Troncoso lives in New York City, and he told me one time about a store right below his apartment where he lives in Manhattan, and he says the store has some insane number, variety of olives that you can just get as many as you want. And I thought, ah, now that's a dream. It's, I still prefer the bakery, but I like that idea of living above a grocery store that has hundreds of different varieties of olives that you can choose from. And I'm going to ask him about those olives. So stick around. We're going to talk to Sergio Troncoso. Sergio, welcome back to Words on a Wire. Thank you, Daniel, for welcome inviting home. me into your great program. Well, welcome back to El Paso. Let me just give them a brief biography of you, Sergio. I mean, for those who don't know who you are, he is the author of The Last Tortilla and Other Stories, which, by the way, was the very first Troncoso book I ever read. It was years before I met you. I moved to El Paso. I was a new writer. Uh-huh. And somebody, a uh, local person, says, hey, have you read Sergio Troncoso's The Last Tortilla? <laughs> and I go, no, but I love the title. <laughs> and she lent me a copy of it. Oh, wow. And I went home and I read it. And it won the Premio Atzlan. I remember mm-hmm. that, which is a very well-known prize for uh, books written by Chicanos. Uh, traditionally, it was judged by, of course, the uh, the godfather of Chicano fiction, Rodolfo Anaya. In fact, uh, that was one of the best phone calls I ever got when Rudy called me in New York and said, uh, you won the premio. I thought it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a cruel joke. And so I read the book, and uh, I never gave it back. It's still on my shelf, and it's still signed to the person who lent it to me. And, and if she's listening to the show, which she might because she's a El Paso literary figure— I have it. I'll be willing to give it back. But that's the first book I read. And then you came out with Crossing Borders, Personal Essays. This was a collection of your essays about, uh, well, there were so many themes in there. But generally, you are an El Paso native, an El Paso Chicano who went to Harvard and then went on to do wonderful things in the literary world. And it's just a great collection. And then The Nature of Truth, which is a novel. And then From This Wicked Patch of Dust, another novel. And you co-edited Our Last Border, Essays on Life Amid the Narco-Violence. You've won a lot of awards, um, including, like I said, the Premio Atzlan, the International Latino Book Award, the Bronze Award for Multicultural Fiction. And I don't think I've ever said this about a guest. Sergio Troncoso has a library named after him right here in El Paso on 9321 Alameda. Oh, yeah. Right there in the barrio. Oh, yeah. Library. I was, that, and that's one of the reasons why I'm, I'm here in El Paso. 
because I was uh, handing out the Troncoso reading prizes at, uh, at this library named after me. And uh, I established, this is our third year, and I established, I basically am paying kids to read. Nice. And I, uh, any uh, high school or grade school, middle school kid within the geographical area of the library is eligible for this prize. And there's six prizes given every year, and I fly in every year, and they get gift cards from Barnes & Noble to buy more books. And so first prize is $125, and second is 100 bucks. And, and these, are, these are kids. What, what exactly is it that they're competing? How, so how do they're, they compete? they're competing to read. So the September 15th, uh-huh. uh, right at the, the beginning of Hispanic Heritage Month uh-huh, till, till December, um, the kids register with the librarians at the Sergio Troncoso Library, and they talk about the books they read. And so typically the winners in that period of time, read 30, 40, sometimes 50 books. And do they, do they books. list all the books that they read? They list they all the books it. that they read. That's and, a fantastic idea. And they also write little essays on their favorite wow. book. Wow. And so we, we, in previous years, we've read those essays in the, in the program. Uh, I fly in. I give them a couple of copies of each book. I talk to the parents. And, and then we give them the, the prizes. And also this year, we wanted to do it uh, sort of a college preparation talk. Uh-huh. So parents ask me questions on how is it going away for school? Well, how should I apply for college? What kind of colleges should I apply to? How, how can I get my kid, if he's a fifth grader or a seventh grader, to start getting ready to, to go to school? And so, you know, some of the issues that kids face when, you know, you, you empecé en la nada, you know. I, you know, I right. didn't even know where Harvard or Yale or Stanford were. There were abstractions. We didn't have the Internet. I think it's I, that way, towards, uh, exactly. towards Austin or something. Right. No, I mean, <laughs> they were just names that a right. counselor told me. And so, uh, you know, I wanted to eliminate that gap for kids now. And reading is really important. Reading changed my life. You know, the, right. I became a writer because I was a voracious reader in Isleta and, and libraries and public libraries. And the El Paso Public Library was uh, so important to me. I would bike all the way from Isleta down Alameda. Uh-huh. The border highway was under construction and not quite done. And I would spend time with my abuelita, who lived in El Segundo Barrio, mm-hmm. on, on Olive Street and St. Brain. I don't know if you know where that is, uh-huh. but it's not far from here. And, uh, and then I would spend time reading Rudy Anaya at the main library in front of the uh, People's Emporium that used to be in front of the main library. of sort of a funky, uh, full of incense mm-hmm. and all sorts of interesting things uh-huh. uh, place. And I, that's where I became a reader. I would spend uh, weekends here and, and hear stories uh, from my abuelita about her growing up with Villa. And mm-hmm. the, the lore is that she had shot and killed two men who attempted to rape her. Mm-hmm. And so she had these really violent, uh, interesting <laughs> stories right. that I, as a kid, loved to hear right. about. Um, and so anyway, so that's, the, the, you know, the El Public Library was essential to me. And so when they named the library after me in Isleta a few years ago, the city council, you know, it's probably the biggest honor I've ever gotten. Right, it is but pretty it, big. And, yeah. and, it's, and it's something that really matters deeply to me. And so w- when they did that, I said, I want to do more than just have a name on the building. Right. I want to come back every year and, and encourage kids to read because that's how it changed my life right. and, and, and how to do that. And so I, we've been doing that for three years. And as long as I live, that prize will exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fund it. I'm happy to do it. And I'm happy to fly in. And I'm very loyal to my community here right. in El Paso and especially Isleta. Right. Absolutely. And when you used to um, ride your bike, it almost sounds like um, 
when we put together the Sergio Troncoso narrative, that image of you riding your your uh, a three speed your, your bicycle to the to the library and uh, you know on a road that hasn't even been built yet, you can I can picture you going over rocks and it's really hot and you're sweating but you're determined to get there. It's very Abraham Lincoln like. You well, know, it we was like Abraham Lincoln. It was like 14, 15 miles, and my mother se persinaba, you know, would would do the sign of the cross to oh try to give great. me dimes to call along the way so that I wouldn't get. And I, I almost got killed on Paisano once. Right. You know, I, almost got, I almost got run over by a bus. But all that to read books, that's really wonderful, beautiful, beautiful story. And I'm wondering if you could choose one book from your childhood that, that you just loved more than any others, what would that book be? Oh, The Outsiders, S.E. Hinton, because Makes that sense. was Isleta when okay. I was growing up. You know, I was Pony Boy, that kid who uh-huh. loved literature who, you know, in, 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 in medio de gangas, uh-huh. you know, we had Barraca contra Calavera, you know. <laughs> chain fights, knife fights in the ditches, you know, a few feet from my house. And that was my life. And so Essie Hinton, The Outsiders, uh, That Was Then, This Is Now, all of those books I loved because they were, you know, I I was living kind of a Chicano version of that in Isleta. You know, and there's a connection between the fact that uh, you would read all these stories and then your your grandmother would tell you stories that were equally, if not, you know, even surpassing the plots of the stories that you were reading, just as interesting, just as profound. And then in this case, you're reading your favorite book is a book that really is about the narrative outside of the book as well, your own story. And maybe that's why, or partially why you became a writer. Absolutely. And and the very first story I ever wrote, the one in the last tortilla, mm-hmm. is called, in fact, published at the Rio Grande Review. Oh, that's uh, our uh, department, uh, the creative writing department. Absolutely. That was journal. the very first publication nice, I got. And nice. it was called The Abuelita. Do you have a copy of that? I have a copy of it. I would love to see a copy I of that. A, I wonder if we have a copy of that. Of that would be fun to uh, you know spread around. And, yeah. And it was uh, The Abuelita. It was about mm-hmm. a version of my grandmother wow. and this tough-as-nails older lady who... You know, who had great stories, and, and she, you know, she was a caraja. She right. she ran her household. You know, don't a lot of Chicano writers start off writing about their abuelita? Well, if you have, I mean, for I mean, me, it's a good thing. I, I mean, yeah. I know I started off. I know mm-hmm. a lot of writers who start off because the abuelita oftentimes is one of the strongest human beings that you ever encountered. Well, it's about history. It's about her taking me back to the revolution. Right. You know, she had a couple of uncles that died fighting for Villa. They were from Chihuahua. And and for me, these oral storytelling, right. this is what she would do, I, you know, in El Segundo, was as profound as what I was reading. In fact, it was really much more meaningful in right. many ways because it connected with, with who I was and who I could be. And and I I remember when I went to Harvard and, you know, the only Chicano in my dorm and I showed up with... Led Zeppelin T-shirts and and bell-bottom jeans, didn't have a, a coat. And I called my abuelita back home, and I said, maybe I should come back home. You know, everyone says I have an accent that I don't belong. And she said, Sergio, don't come back with your tail between your legs. You show them who you are. And I think, you know, my abuelita um, was, was, you know, she didn't have a formal education, but she knew uh-huh. how to fight. Absolutely. She knew how to survive in a tough situation in, in the middle of social chaos. Right. And so for me, I never forgot that. You know, she you had know, backbone. And that, that's why I think the, the grandma figure in Chicano literature, especially in early Chicano literature, the grandma figure is such an important archetype. I mean, every grandma we write about is our grandma. But on the other hand, there's also there was this strength required of women of their generation. Mm -hmm. If they're going to keep the family together, if they're going to keep the children ultimately, 
going off to places like Harvard. They need to be fighters. Absolutely, no, and and I think you see this in in people like Domingo Martinez mm-hmm. and you know the the Boy Kings of Texas, and other many writers. I mean Gloria Anzaldúa. You know when I later read her, um, and she was talking about women developing this yeah. sense of being able to size someone up because of the danger that right. they face. That was my abuelita. I would bring kids from Harvard, and and she would say, "Este es un mentiroso." <laughs> you know, este nomás te está diciendo puras tonterías. And, you know, so uh-huh. she would size people up like that. And I loved it. And because she, you had to do that in the kind of environment you grew up. It was a matter of life and death. It wasn't just a matter of judgment. Right. It was a matter of if I make the wrong decision, I'm going to be in a dangerous around? situation. Is she yeah. still around? Uh, no, she died. Uh, you know, uh, when I was... Um, Older undergraduate, I think I was a junior or a senior. But your and, mom and dad are still around? Yeah, so my, my mother is still alive, and that's where I stay in Isleta whenever I come. And my father died about uh, two oh, years ago. Sorry. And so, you know, I had great parents in Isleta. Empezamos sin nada. You know, we didn't have electricity at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We dug our own outhouse. And... Um, and so, and they taught me to work. They worked to work until I drop. <laughs> and I think that's that kind of immigrant mentality is something that I think is invaluable. And I taught my kids. Right. When they didn't have homework, I gave them homework. Wow. Every summer, you know, they had to take extra classes, extra math. Um, it's not magic. And it's, now they're, one of them just graduated from Yale, was yep. it? Yep. Yeah, Aaron graduated from Yale, and he just got a great job at the uh, National Resources Defense Council, mm-hmm. uh, one of the biggest nonprofits defending the environment in wow, Chicago. that's fantastic. And so he's going to be a litigation assistant. And then uh, uh, Isaac is a third year at the University of Chicago. He's doing public policy and global affairs. Wow. Yeah. So when when you had this honor of, uh, I've never heard of anybody but an ex-president or somebody dead having a library named after them. <laughs> pues que no me which, maten. Which, is, which is why, you know, it, which is really reflective of, of, of your commitment to El Paso and El Paso's love for your work and for everything that you do. But when you, I assume that there was some sort of ceremony opening the library and, you know, with, with the Sergio Troncoso library branches, the sign and all that. Was your father around for that? Yes, he was in a wheelchair. You know, he had diabetes. But yes, my father was, was around for that. We wheeled him over. Wow. And, um, and my mother, of course, was there. It's very meaningful to me because it is, you know, I, I grew up um, a few blocks from the library. Mm-hmm. It is my community. I will always be uh, very loyal to that community. That will be the place where I will be buried. Right. In the uh, library specifically. Not what in the section? library. What section? No, no. <laughs> not in the library, but in Isleta. You know, it, see, what the, section would you want to be buried uh, in the library if no, you had to be buried in the library? <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, you know, maybe literary fiction. <laughs> but uh, And I believe in literacy, you know, mm-hmm. the power of literacy, the power of words, the I power think, of I think, I think I would want to be buried in the occult section. <laughs> <laughs> Just to freak people out when they came by, you know, kind of like... <laughs> that would be very cool. Haunt them a bit. I'm talking to Sergio Troncoso, uh, a fiction writer, activist, uh, uh, El Paso native, currently living in New York City. You don't need an introduction to El Paso, uh, the, to the El Paso community. But the fact is, your reach is national, even international. I, I ran into you in so many conferences in Washington and Chicago, uh, Denver, uh, I mean, you're everywhere. Your books are nationally distributed. You're well known to other audiences as well. But you just came out with an essay. 
Mm-hmm. And it's in this wonderful collection I just got my hands on called We Wear the Mask, 15 mm-hmm. True Stories of Passing in America. And I love the title because it makes you think of dying in America. Right. <laughs> but it's about passing off as someone. Like if you're, uh, if you're black and you pass off as white. And according to the essay, your narrative kind of begins, and I know it begins in El Paso, but it depends on where we start in the narrative or or how we tell the story, but mm-hmm. in a lot, in in some sense, your narrative, professionally speaking, began in Washington D.C. Can you tell us about that year that you went to Washington D.C.? Well, it was a crazy year, and the, the essay is called "Passing Ambition," and it's you know I'm I'm a sophomore at Harvard in the essay, and. I'm trying to become a Harvard student. Uh-huh. You know, I had no idea what that would mean when I left Isleta. Because there weren't very many people in your neighborhood where you can say, hey, I'm going to Harvard. What's it like? Not a single, <laughs> not a yeah. single one. Right. And, and I, I had never visited the state, much less uh, right. the school. And so, I, and I'm watching what my other friends at Harvard, once I become a freshman and, and a sophomore, what they're doing. They're getting summer internships. That's what many Harvard students do. Right. And, and often they're in Washington, And you were coming home to El Paso every summer working at J.C. Penney's exactly. in the basement. The first, the, <laughs> the first uh, summer after Harvard, I was w- arranging underwear and socks at the J.C. Penney downtown, which is not there anymore. Yeah. But, you know, I had no clue. But that was the one that used to be on Broadway? Yeah. It was, uh, it was like right where uh, near the, the old um, popular was I don't yeah. know right on uh, like that might have been before my time. I came to yeah. El Paso in two thousand. Yeah, I, I think it was that. Yeah, after. but anyway, yeah, you were so, working. So, so I'm trying to get this intern. You know, I say well, I'm going to get an internship, and you know, like my friends are doing it at, at at Harvard, and and I go about it. That's what the essay is about. I'm trying to be something that I think I should be, and I'm trying to be a Harvard student, trying to 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 legitimize myself. And, 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 you know, a lot of us fight this, this issue of do we really belong? You know, I always felt Harvard made a mistake or, <laughs> you know, that, that I, I don't belong here. Can, can we stop at that? Because <laughs> I think that's really important. Um, uh, here you are, a student who earned your way into Harvard, yet you get there and you kind of think you can't help but feel, even though intellectually you may not know, that, that they made a mistake and you're going to be found out. Oh, yeah. You you feel inadequate. You feel you don't belong. I mean, everything from your accent to how you dress right. to I didn't even know where you would go eat. So I just followed the other students to right. to the, the the cafeteria. So so this 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 summer, you know, it's it's sophomore year, and I'm trying to get this internship. So I called Richard White's office. He used to be the congressman uh, from El Paso, a, a, sort of a de- blue dog Democrat, mm-hmm. and 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 you know, I have no idea what I'm doing. And so I called them, and, and they said, well, we've already awarded all the internships um, to probably, you know, very much richer and whiter, uh, <laughs> you know, students right, right. From, from, from El Paso. And so I'm, I'm even late. I don't even know what the timetables are. And on uh, the JFK, at um, uh, the John F. Kennedy School of Government um, bulletin board, I see a, 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 Harvard, uh, a Radcliffe woman offering her house. And Chevy Chase, and so I agree to to go to to Washington D.C. before I actually have an internship. Right. You know, and that decision you made—that was a really bold decision because basically you were going to get free rent, but you didn't have any income or any idea of whether or not you were going to get income. But you took that step, and I'm finding that in a lot of narratives of successful people. You need to sometimes be able to take that kind of risk. Or it, you don't know, but you just feel it. it it's going to happen. It's a, a leap into the unknown, 
and it's uh, trying to make yourself as you go along, you know, faking it until you make it. Right. And uh, and so Margot says, yeah, you can live with us, and you'll have to do some work for us and babysit, but you can live here in Chevy And they'll Chase. even give you a car to use. Right. Yeah, right. And so they, they were very well-to-do. He was an env- uh, Don Stever was an environmental lawyer with the uh, Justice Department, and Margot was a poet. And Margot was, is a good poet. And, you know, I got to meet Denise Levertov right, that summer. Right, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, <laughs> her, one of her best friends was Denise Levertov, and Denise yeah. would come to the house, and you, you met her. And I don't know if you know this, but another El Paso writer that everybody knows is Benjamin Alida Sainz. Mm-hmm. And uh, he um, actually grew up in Las Cruces, but he's been so much a part of this area. Las Cruces is very close to us, for those who don't know, and... Uh, uh, it's still the borderland, and he knows El Paso better than any city in the world, writes about El Paso. But his thesis director and um, mentor was Denise Leverton. I didn't know that. Yeah. i got to talk to Ben about Isn't that. Isn't that interesting? That's very interesting. I mean, you know, I, I didn't know anything. You know, she, right. they're, they're, we were chatting with Denise Leverton and Chevy Chase, and, you know, I, I had right. no clue who the heck she was. Yeah, and let me let me clarify. He said uh, Denise Levertov in Chevy Chase, not and Chevy Chase. No. The the actor of Chevy Chase wasn't there. Right? No, no. Chevy <laughs> Chevy Chase, Maryland, which yeah, is yeah. which is just a suburb of of D.C. So I show up, and the Richard White's office tells me, and this is all in the essay. Um, he tells me, well, "Well, we'll find something for you." So when I arrive, of course, they put me in the mailroom, which mm-hmm. is like the sub basement of the Cannon Office Building, and every single person in the mailroom is African American. I'm the only "quote unquote" white guy right. in in the basement, which, and we're, which is kind of interesting because at first you were trying to pass as a Harvard student, and right. now whether you like it or not, you're passing as, as a, white a white guy. guy, and I'm not. I'm a Chicano <laughs> from Isleta. Right. And and so that's how people take me, and 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 so they show me how to work these huge machines that create these these flyers and propaganda that the right. congressman and you sent got you. sweaty, and it wasn't the job that you expected it to <laughs> no, be. No, no, and I, I had to take my tie off and and take my coat off and really become an obrero again, uh, you know, while I was kind of lying to the Stevers about what I was truly doing. Cause, Stevers, the people that you lived with. Yeah, the Stevers yeah. were the people I lived with, and and so I was sort of saying, you know, I have an internship. I'm, I'm going to congressional hearings and all this, you know, BS. And I, I wasn't. I, of course, I was working in the mailroom, in, and I had to be, join the union. So for that one month, I actually earned a lot of money. More than you did at <laughs> J.C. Penney. More, much more, like three times the amount that I uh, earned at J.C. Penney simply by being part of the union. You know what I found really interesting and something I think that's just symbolic of you, Sergio, in many ways, your ability to be proactive. You know, and to and to do things in this life without you know uh, like waiting for somebody to call you to do them, even after you were told by the senator, was it a senator or a congressman? It's a congressman. By yeah. the congressman that you you know that, or but the congressman's assistant. No, there is nothing. No opening. Sorry, forget it. Uh, you called them back. Oh, absolutely. You called them and you says, "Hey, I'm from El Paso, man. I'm an <laughs> El Paso boy," and you say, "I'm going I'm to quote exactly." Uh, you say, "My tone certainly hinted." quote, troublemaker, whether I attended it or not. And I love this idea. Tell me, what is that tone that you're referring to? Well, I mean... And, I, and, and how do you use that in positive ways? It's, it's my grandmother talking through uh-huh. me in many ways. It, it, it is at a certain point where I felt, unless I do something, 
unless I get aggressive with this office manager in mm-hmm. Richard White's office, and I say I'm going to make I'm going to you know make a stink that you didn't help an El Paso the, kid, the one El Paso Harvard kid that they right. were, that they that contacted they had, them, and they had they had interns and, that were from Austin and yeah, UT going Austin to SMU and, and, yeah. and going to UT Austin, but not n- nobody, nobody from, from El Paso, nobody from El Paso. And and so you know, I, I said I'm going to make a stink. I vote in El Paso. You know, I, I I I why aren't you helping me? And so that's when she she said, "Come on over, and we'll get you something." And I think at a certain point, you get to your life with it where you have nothing to lose. You have nothing to lose. And I think one of the things my grandmother certainly taught me is to fight back in however capacity you can. And I think that's what was going on then. And I think that's when she said, you know, just come on over. We'll get you something. And they put me in the mailroom. Right, right. And so, and that essay is about how I eventually even got out of the mailroom uh, toward the end of the summer. There's another quote in this. Uh, you say, whenever you pass as someone other than who you are, the presumption is that you know who you are first of all. And then you decide not to be that, which I th- found an interesting idea. But also, I think I couldn't help but think of Borges in this essay uh, story, actually, that he wrote on Shakespeare mm-hmm. called Everything and Nothing. And um, I'm going to quote from it because um, he's talking about Shakespeare. And he says, at 20 odd, he went to London. Instinctively, he had already trained himself in the habit of pretending that he was someone so it would not be discovered that he was no one. And then uh, in the in the story, Shakespeare becomes an actor and he finds that he loves it. But uh, but afterwards, when the last line, here's a quote, was applauded and the last corpse removed from the stage, the hated sense of unreality came over him again. He ceased to be Ferrix or Tamburlaine and again became a nobody. And this is about Shakespeare, who felt like a nobody and felt that he had to pass right. as somebody. Uh, but I sense that as he developed artistically and developed as a human being— that he arrived at a place where he didn't feel like he was passing anymore. And I'm wondering, are you there? Are, well, are... I, I feel that way now. But, but I, I think it's also a matter of, you know, I also hear my mother's voice say, no te creas muy muy. Don't think of yourself right. as too much, Absolutely. too much with your nose in the air. So I, I think I am now confident about what I am doing. Yeah. I do believe in, in some abilities, and I, but I think one of the reasons that I, I try to develop more abilities was because I'm hungry. You know, yeah. I never will Absolutely. never stop being hungry to get become a better writer, you to try something drive. differently. You got a lot of energy. Yeah. Right, absolutely. You know, what's the point of living if you're not really going to take it to the max? I'm, I'm with you. I'm fist bumping him right now <laughs> for those who, who can't see. But that's true. That This sense of you, you're trying something different. You might fall flat on your face, but it's worth the effort to to fight for what you want. And then and then once you get there, is this really what I want? Because right. that's what happens at the end of the essay. I, I find that internship, and it's really just currying favors for congressmen, and it's right. kind of awful what, what, what I'm doing. And I say that's not really enough for me. Right, right. And that's when I start writing. Which is why know. the title is so appropriate, you know, Passing Ambition. Um, because, yeah, you, you you discovered really in, in many points. That's why I was saying that it's really a starting point of your narrative as a writer. And, right. You know, this is what I want to do. And, and as an activist, you know, because an activist isn't going to work in a senator's office, probably. Absolutely. Well, and, and you can be th- thinking <laughs> no, of it. No, I, don't, I don't mean to offend anybody. You know, yeah. No, it, you know, but, but you can be thinking of the Hegelian dialectic. You know, you reach, right. you reach a point and then you, you examine that point. Is that where I really want to be? Is that what I really want to do? And then you, you 
you have more work to do. Right. You know, and I think that for me never stops. I always want to push myself as a writer and and whatever I'm doing, you know, am I doing enough for my community? Right. Am I doing telling stories that are different? Um, from what I said, let's say in the last tortilla. I've been talking to Sergio Troncoso, El Paso native who lives in New York City now. And I keep saying that because one of my favorite stories, I always, every time I see you, I have to say, tell me about the olives in New York City. <laughs> I want you to come to New York City and I'll take you to Zabar's. I, I'm ready. It, it's, uh, you know, hundreds of uh, different kinds of olives hundreds. from all over the oh, world. See, I, I only remember 25. It's even better. Cheeses <laughs> from all over the world. And, uh, yeah, Zabar's is where I eat. I go and, and get, uh, you know, it's a great, it's basically the quintessential New York deli. Right. And, yeah. and it's a place where you can just spoil yourself. And this well, is why, awesome. you know, I have a little yanta. Well, thank you, Sergio, for joining us on Words on a Wire, and uh, we'll get you on the show next time you come back. And thank you, Daniel Chacon. You are, you know, a a light to many of us as well. You know, we love your work, and uh, and we want the next one. (laughs) All right, thank you. I'm Daniel Chacon. I'd like to thank our producer, Lauren Terrazas, and of course, I'd like to thank you for joining us. See you next time.